0: Thanks for being here. You want to grab your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, John chapter 3, and Colossians chapter 3. So three places tonight, hoping you can multitask. John chapter 3 will be there first, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and Colossians chapter 3. So I'm going to give you a minute to find all three of those places. When Amanda and I were first married, we joined the gym on one of those three-month, super cheap plans, you know what I'm talking about? And to sweeten the deal, the gym said, we'll throw in a physical fitness test, now I should have known that that was a trap. Uh, A, I don't like tests to begin with. I especially don't like physical fitness tests. Uh, But that's sweetened the deal. So we joined the gym and we showed up for our appointment for our physical fitness test. And essentially they were putting us through some workouts and this guy followed us around with a clipboard. And uh, after every workout he was writing things down and and he put them into a computer and he brought us in a little room and and, uh, he started going over the results. With us. And Amanda turned out like an Olympic athlete. Like it was unbelievable. They were trying to hire her to be a trainer in the gym. It was awesome. And then they, he turned to me and uh, he kind of had this sour look on his face like, you know, she was amazing and you are horrible. And, uh, and so he started telling me that everything, you know, everything that was wrong with me, and this is one of those guys that has like huge muscles, and then muscles on top of his muscles, and then even, you know, muscles to the third power on top of those. And, and so he gives me this list of everything that's wrong with me, and then he gives me a list of workouts so that I can fix everything that's wrong with me. And, and so Amanda started going to this cycling class. I don't know if you've heard of cycling. They're very popular right now. Essentially, in your local gym, there is a room, and inside that room, there is a bunch of stationary bikes, and there would be a leader that would lead you through a fictional bike ride. Of course, they're stationary, so you're not going anywhere. But he would tell you, "Okay, now we're going up a hill, and uh, now we're going down a hill, and now we're going really fast, and now we're slowing down." And and uh, and people sign up for this, and uh, apparently, it's a good workout. So Amanda comes home from the gym and saying, "You got to go to one of these cycling classes with me. They're unbelievable." You know, he gave you the long list. She was trying to be a good wife and not condemn me in it because, again, Olympic athlete. Uh, but she's like, you're going to love this workout. It's really, really great. And so I end up going with her. And, and so, you know, we have the warm-up part of the, the deal. And that's my favorite part, honestly, the warm-up, because in the warm-up, you don't work hard. And the cool-down is also my favorite. I think it's my most favorite because it means you're done. And, and so um, we start, and then he says, okay, we're going up a hill. Turn up your resistance. Now, on the handlebars of these stationary bikes are these little knobs. And when you turn the knobs to the right, it's essentially like putting brakes on your stationary bike. And it simulates what it would feel like to ride up a hill. And so this is my first time in a cycling class. And so I look to my right and to my left, and, and the people are cranking up the resistance. And so I crank it up, too. Well, you know, when you crank it up, it makes it incredibly, you know, hard. And, and so it was, uh, long story short, it's the worst workout of my life. I hated every moment of it. But Amanda somehow talked me into coming back again the next day. Uh, And I'm not a smart person, but I am a fast learner. I think there's a difference. And what I learned in just my two brief experiences in cycling class is that the man who's telling you what to do never gets off his bike to actually see if you are putting resistance on your bike. You know, he's not getting up and monitoring. He's staying right there on his seat. And so when everyone else went to crank it to the right, well, I just, you know, just faked it, you know, I didn't want them to know that I was being lazy, but I wanted to be lazy. Well, you can imagine how many of my, you know, three-month fitness goals I accomplished. Not very many. Because if you're going to change, it's going to be hard. And that's what we've been talking about the last two weeks. You remember last week we started essentially one message. Last week was part one, and this week is part two. And there are some changes that need to happen to us. Now, I'm guessing that if you know you at all, it's not a surprise to you that I would say that there are some things about you and some things about me that need to change. I'm guessing that you are well acquainted with those areas. And most of us have been intending on changing. Again, if you are a follower of Jesus that has any kind of passion and any kind of commitment, then I'm guessing that you want to change. But change is hard. And the reason we got into this mess of brokenness in our lives is because most of us just took the path of least resistance and it led us to these places that now we look at and say, well, I need to change. But change is not easy. And what we're going to see from the Scripture today, from Colossians chapter 3, is that God has not left us alone when it comes to changing. That He's given us a new self. That we're not trying to reform the old us, That he's giving us a new us, a new identity, a new self. That he's left us with the word of God. And he's left us with the spirit of God. And I think the prophetic word that we're bringing to our family tonight is that those changes that you've been intending on making but have never gotten around to, now is the time. The places where your intention has been. You replace that intention with action so that some real change actually comes to us. So let's start our journey tonight in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of of the Jews. Now Nicodemus was a Pharisee, that meant that he lived with an incredible amount of moral precision. He was a very righteous man according to their their law, and he was also a ruler of the Jews, which meant he was a part of the ruling party. So he he was kind of a unique guy. He was a moral upright man and yet he had a tremendous amount of authority, and he comes to Jesus to ask some questions it says in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him. Now notice Jesus is not going to in the least bit answer his question. He's going to introduce a whole new topic to Nicodemus. And Jesus answered him, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus tells Nicodemus that Nicodemus has to be born again. Now, that phrase has mostly been lost To most of us. In fact, when you hear that phrase right now, it's usually in the context of some political poll, and it rarely has a connotation that you would like to attach your own name with. You know, those born again believers. I'm guessing that it's been a long time since you've referred to yourself as a born again Christian. Because again, it has some kind of weird connotation and none of us want to be weird. But it's really a shame that that phrase has been lost to us because it's a beautiful and powerful idea. I mean, think about when babies are born here on earth. Everyone gets excited when a baby is born When our son Jackson was getting ready to be born, Amanda went to the doctor. You know how the ladies kind of go to the doctor at an increasing rate. Well, there towards the end, Amanda goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, Hey, I think it's time, and I want you to check into the hospital tonight, and we'll get this party started tomorrow morning. Well, of course, we were thrilled, and we were so excited. We packed our bags, and we headed to the hospital to spend a night in the hospital. Now, I wish somebody who had some knowledge would have come to me and said, Listen, dude, this is not a buy one, get one free scenario. You know, you're going to have to pay for that, and the hospital is a very expensive hotel Uh, but you know even if somebody had done that to us it probably wouldn't have mattered that's how excited we were to welcome our firstborn son in into the world and when our daughter Annabeth was born three and a half years later you know, we were still excited. We, were, we went on a last date, you know, because moms and dads have to go on a last date right before the baby's born because it's going to be a while before they're alone again. And so we went out to a real nice dinner, and, and it was kind of like a movie. You know, we're at the dinner, and we're enjoying one, each other, and it's kind of like, uh-oh. But it's not a scary uh uh-oh, it's a, oh yeah, uh uh-oh, we've been waiting for nine months for this to happen. And so we rushed to the hospital, and we got there, and they're like, what are you doing? You know, you're early, you're like way, way too early. And I think it was days later before anything actually happened. But we were so excited, because that's how you react, and that's how you respond when babies are born into this world. Because there's a moment where they don't exist, they are not here, and then they are here. Well, that's what it means to be born again, in the kingdom of God, you were not there. You did not exist in the kingdom of God. And then you were born again, and you were there. Second Corinthians chapter 5 essentially says the same thing, but in some different words. It says this in verse 17, which will be familiar to many of you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So when you place your faith in Jesus, you become a new creation. That's taking us all the way back to Adam and Eve. You remember those stories. God takes dirt when there was no humanity. He takes dirt and he forms it into the shape of a man and he breathes on that dirt and Adam begins to exist. And then he takes one of Adam's ribs and he forms Eve. Again, there was a moment in this world where there was no Adam and there was no Eve. And then they were here. There was a moment when you were not in the kingdom of God. And then you were born again. Then you were created all over again. And you were. And that's what Colossians chapter 3 is saying in verse 10. When it says, And we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That you've been given a new self, the old you. That's the you apart from the grace and power of Jesus. It has gone. And the new you has come. So last week we saw that there are some things about the old us that need to go. Some patterns and behaviors that are connected to the old us that need to be put to death and done away with. And we need to start wearing this new self. Well, The new self is invisible. You know, when you become a Christian, they don't give you an outfit to wear so that you know that you're putting on the new self. How do I know when I'm wearing the new self? Well, this is essentially the whole point of the message. And so if you wanted to write something down, you don't have to pay attention to the rest of it tonight. It's a beautiful thing. Here's how you know when you are wearing the new self. Because Jesus is all, and all is for Jesus. You will know when you are wearing the new self, when in your life, Jesus is everything, and everything you do is for Jesus. Look at verse 11. He says, Here, that's in the kingdom of God, in the church, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, he's giving them a, li- a list of distinctions and descriptions that these Colossians might have used to describe themselves. I mean, look at the list again. Greek or Jew, so that's their nationality. Circumcised or uncircumcised, that's their religious distinction. Uh, he, he mentions being a barbarian or a Scythian. Uh, the Scythians were a barbaric people that lived on the north uh, edge, a north shore of the Black Sea, and would have been very familiar to the Colossians slave or free. These are all distinctions and descriptions that the Colossians might have used to describe themselves. And we have those too. We have a long list of words that we use to describe ourselves. Now think about how you describe yourself when you leave the state of Texas. What's the first thing that you tell people and uh, they want to know about you? I'm from Texas, right? And you say it in a puffed up way, like you're bragging about it. You know, I wasn't born here in the state of Texas, but once I moved here, I got this, like, aggression complex about everybody who who doesn't live here. You know, like, I'm somehow better than you. I just got here, but I'm already better than you by just being and breathing in the atmosphere of Texas. That's a description that you use to describe yourself. And if you're here in uh, Texas, then you say, well, I'm from Houston. And then you start describing things about your life. You know, I'm smart, or I'm not that smart, or I'm somewhere in the middle, I'm tall, I'm short, I'm skinny, I'm, I'm fat, I'm beautiful, I'm not so beautiful, I'm rich, I'm poor, I'm middle class, I, I, I do this for a job, I'm single, I'm married, I, I have children, I don't have children. These are all descriptions that we use to describe ourselves, distinctions about us. But what the scripture is saying tonight is that those descriptions are secondary now. The primary description is Jesus. And that's what it says at the end of this list. But Christ is all and in all. What that means is that when you were born again, when you were newly created, when you received the new self, you got a new identity. And that new identity circles and hovers and orbits around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So really, when you think about you, You should think about Jesus first before you start thinking about you. Now, I know that sounds hyper-spiritual and incredibly unhelpful. There are things that we talk about in church all the time that make perfect sense in this room. And as soon as you leave this room, they make no sense whatsoever. They just don't fit with the rest of our lives. And that could, uh, that could kind of feel like it is. Oh, yeah, you know, everything is about Jesus. And when I think about me, i got to think about Jesus first. Yeah, the, the potential and the, the chance that that will actually happen for me is like .001%. That's what many of us are thinking. But the reality is, is that this idea is the difference between you being a, a follower of Jesus that bears much fruit and you being a follower of Jesus who just shows up to church and hopes you're going to go to heaven one day. The people who bear fruit are the people who filter everything that they are through Jesus and what he has done. And look how he describes us. Again, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So these are the things that we are in, in Christ Again, imagine somebody asking you as we think about thinking about Jesus before we think about ourselves, you know, hey, tell me about yourself. Well, the most important thing about me that you need to know is, uh, I'm, you know, Jesus. Okay, you know, you're super weird. And so they're going to ask you another question when you bring up the Jesus bomb into the conversation. Well, you know, tell me about yourself. Are you married? Yeah, I'm married to this amazing man, this, uh, you know, amazing woman. And uh, but you need to know that the foundation of our amazing marriage is actually not us and our character. It's, it's Jesus. That's what the scripture says because, you know, uh, the husband and wife should act like, you know, how Jesus loves the church and how the church responds to Jesus. And so I'm married to this amazing person, but Jesus is really the foundation of our marriage. Then they're going to think that you're super weird and they're going to say, uh, well, you know, what do you do for work? You say, well, I'm in construction or I do engineering or, you know, I work at this job or whatever. But... Jesus is my provider because the scripture says that he's going to meet all of my needs according to his riches and glory. And they really want to just end the conversation at this point. And so they're just looking for any shred of humanity in you. And they're going to say, well, what do you do for fun? Well, I I like sports. I like to follow sports. I used to like to play sports, but then I'm not fit anymore, according to some guy at the gym. And so now I just watch other people play sports but what you need to know is that that's what I do for fun, but the root of my joy is actually Jesus because he said that his joy is going to be in me and my joy would be complete. It's a total shift in our our thinking because when you get the new self, you get a new identity. And that's what he's saying here again in verse 12. Put on then, and listen how he describes us as believers, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So he describes the new you as being chosen by God. Now that's an incredibly rich word in the scripture. It brings us back to Genesis chapter 12 when God calls a man named Abraham. He chooses this man Abraham and he says to Abraham, I'm going to create a A people for my own possession. I'm going to create a chosen people. And Abraham, you are going to be the father of that people. And your wife, Sarah, is going to be the mother of that people. It's all going to start with you. And that's really the story of the Old Testament, how God relates to his chosen people. And then at the right time, he sends his one and only son, Jesus, to come and be born of a woman into that chosen people. And Jesus is the chosen one. He is the Messiah. He's raised up out of that people. And he lives a sinless life. He offers up a sacrificial death. And he takes for himself a glorious resurrection. And the scripture says that everyone who believes in the chosen one in Jesus is grafted in to the chosen people of God. And so if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you have been born again, if you are a new creation, then you have been chosen by God. And not you as an individual, but you now in a family. That's why the scripture refers to the church in the New Testament a few times as a house. Because in a house is a family. And we are a part of the chosen people of God. And we get all the benefits and all the protection and all the provision of the chosen people of God and then he says holy to be holy is to be pure to be set apart for something sacred now if you were here last week then you remember the list that we read last week we also said uh, Guinness Book World Records for the number of times the word sex was said in about 20 minutes it was unbelievable I was on fire with it because that's what the scripture was talking about look at verse 5 Back up a few verses. So he says, "'Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you.'" This is the old you. "'Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. "'And on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. "'In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. "'But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. "'Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices.'" Again look at that list sexual immorality impurity idolatry anger wrath malice slander and many of us have been guilty of those things this week just like the colossians you know Paul doesn't just pull that list randomly out of the air these are people these are these are things that these people were struggling with and wrestling with and doing that's why he had to tell them to put them off So, how can he say about them and us just a paragraph later that we are holy? How can he say about me that I'm holy? I know the things that I've done. How can he look at you and say the word holy and pure, knowing the things that you've done? It's because we've been washed by the blood of Jesus, we've been cleaned. By the word of Jesus. And if you are in Christ tonight. Then you are holy. You may have lived with moral precision. Just like Nicodemus. You are holy. You may be bringing something much less than moral precision to the table tonight. And if you are in Christ. Then you are holy. In the Old Testament the word holy is used often to describe the the tools and the instruments of the temple. And they were holy because they only had one specific use. They didn't get used anywhere else except for that, that function in the temple. And see, holiness it isn't just a descriptive word of us. It's also a way for us to fight off sin. Because I don't know about you, but most of the time I'm thinking of myself And I judge myself based on the things that I do. And you probably do too. If you do some great things, then you feel great about yourself. If you do some things that are less than great, then you you don't feel that great about yourself. What happens when the things that you do are not good? The only thing that you're left with then is that you are not good. And then when you start thinking of yourself as not being good, then when you don't do good, what can you say? I'm not good. So, of course... I do things that are not good. And we just end up justifying and living with those not good things for five years and 10 years and 15 years later. But when you start thinking of yourself as holy, when you start thinking of yourself as pure in Christ, then you can start saying, hey, I'm holy. I shouldn't be saying this. I'm holy. I shouldn't be saying this. I'm holy. I shouldn't be here. I'm holy. I shouldn't be doing this. Because that's what it says. The new you is holy. The new you is chosen. And the new you is beloved. By the way, this is my friend Matt. Matt's going to help land us the plane uh, tonight. This is his first time to help us do it. So a round of applause for my friend Matt. Yeah. If this is your first time here, we do this every week, what this means is we're almost done, so you're, you're happy. It's a good, good sign for Matt to be out here. But he says you're beloved. The new you is loved. And we talked about the love of God in depth a, a few weeks ago, and so we're not going to camp here. But I, I did just want to say that many of us, we just live under an incredible amount of, of self-condemnation. You know we all have that little voice inside of our heads that talks to us that puts thoughts in our minds and some of your voices hate you they never have anything good to say about you they pounce that voice pounces on you when you make a mistake when criticism comes that voice chimes in with that criticism I just think that many of us just feel a tremendous amount of weight and pressure from our own self-condemnation and I just want to remind us according to the word of God tonight that wherever you go and whatever room that you find yourself in the most important opinion in that room says that you are beloved so it doesn't matter what the voice says and if the voice of self condemnation comes to you tonight or even now, you're not pure you're not holy, you're not measuring up then you can just remind that voice in you According to the scripture, no, I'm loved by the only opinion that matters. The new you, it's new identity. And then it goes on, and it's going to list, the scripture's going to list for us the things that the new us should be doing, the things that we should put on. Holy and beloved, here they are, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Verse 14 And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now there are a hundred different messages in those those few verses, but uh, Matt's up here, so we don't have time to get to all those tonight. So let's just look at the summary, the capstone of what he was saying. Verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, so whether you're speaking or acting, whether you're saying things or just being, in everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now that phrase, the name of the Lord, it's common in the Old Testament. You can see Throughout the Old Testament, it's saying, call on the name of the Lord and praise the name of the Lord and bless the name of the Lord and worship the name of the Lord. You see servants of God serving in the name of the Lord. But there's one story when it comes to the name of the Lord that gets lifted up above all the other stories, even in the scripture. And I want to show it to you tonight. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. This would be a familiar story even if you've not been to church in a while or even never been. You've heard of this story because it's about Moses. Moses was born into the chosen people of God. But he was actually adopted by the daughter of the Pharaoh and so he lived his young life as the adopted grandson of the king of Egypt. But he ends up murdering a man to defend his original people, the Israelites. And so he flees Egypt and he becomes a shepherd. For 40 years he lives just tending his flock. And here in Exodus chapter 3, he's, he's doing exactly that. And he's on this mountain and he sees a burning bush. And you know the story. God speaks to him out of the burning bush. and This is what God says to him in verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God gives Moses this mission to be the rescuer of the Israelites, and he just brings his humanity to the table. And he said, who am I to to be able to do something as great as, as this? And what if they reject me? What if they don't listen to me? I don't know if you can identify with those two fears that he brings up. You know, am I enough? Do I measure up? And what will people think of me? I know nobody in here has ever struggled with those two things, except for probably every day of your entire life. But Moses is just honest about it, and he brings his fears to the table. And he starts his first question by saying, who am I? Man, we're obsessed with that question. That question is in our bones. Who am I in this circle of friends? Who am I at work? Who am I at my university? Who am I in this relationship? Who am I in this home? Who am I in this family? Who am I on this street of neighbors? Who am I among our friends? Who am I on my team? And who am I when I drop off my kids? Who am I among all the other parents? Who am I? what does God say to Moses when Moses starts going, who am I? He essentially says, who you are is for the most part, irrelevant to this conversation. Because I am. We want to say, who am I? And God says, I am. God is giving a name to Moses that supersedes all of his fear. Supersedes all of his other thinking. And that's what Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 is talking about. A name has been given to us it supersedes all of our brokenness. It supersedes all of our selfishness. It supersedes all of our plans. The name of Jesus has been given to us. And when you wear the new self, everything you do is under the banner of the name of Jesus. We see in the scripture that the name of Jesus has been given unrivaled power. It's at the name of Jesus that demons are expelled. It's at the name of Jesus that people are healed. It's at the name of Jesus that people are saved, lives are transformed. The name of Jesus has unparalleled and unrivaled power. And as we think about places in us that need to change, the name of Jesus is a lifeline out of brokenness and temptation. You know, just take that list from last week, the one that we read earlier. A sexual immorality and anger and the things that we say. I mean, maybe you're in a dating relationship and you're in a, a moment in that relationship where it feels like the momentum is, is bringing you around first base, second base, third base. You know where I'm going. And if you get into that situation, just stop and say, hey, can we talk about Jesus right now? I'm thinking that's going to put the brakes on everything when you bring that up. Or maybe that link appears on your computer. You weren't asking for it. You weren't seeking it out. It just pops up. And as it pops up, you find the arrow moving in that direction. And you know you've got seconds and not minutes to try to talk yourself out of it. And really, you don't have the time to, to give yourself the, the list of the 15 reasons why you should avoid clicking that link. So instead of, uh, of just trying to hold yourself back, why don't you just breathe out, out loud, the name of Jesus? Are you getting ready to fire off that angry email, that wrath-filled email because they hurt you and now it's time for you to hurt them? Why don't you just stop and pray in the name of Jesus? Because the name of Jesus has unrivaled power and it is a defibrillator to our minds and hearts to snap us back into righteous and clear thinking. Some of us have been just trying to hold ourselves back from sin. And when you use your own willpower, what you are saying in that moment of temptation is your own name. And your name has no power. And your name has no authority. And it's no wonder we're still asking for forgiveness for the same ten things that we've asked for forgiveness from all the days of our lives so instead of just saying your own name in temptation and in the midst of brokenness brokenness why don't you say the name that is above every name why don't you say the name of of the one that demons have to bow to and be removed from the name of Jesus and If there are things in me and in you, things that we do, places that we go, things that we are a part of that you could not in good conscience say out loud the name of Jesus because they just don't fit together, I guess we know where change needs to start in us. The old you is gone. So let it go. The new you has come in Jesus so let it come let's pray Father we are so grateful that you are not trying to reform anybody tonight you're not trying to bind us up to try to keep the old self clean and pure you are giving a new self. And so we receive that tonight. Why don't you just just receive tonight and go through mentally, spiritually, that you are chosen, you are part of the chosen people of God, that you are holy tonight and that you are beloved. And in your own words, in the quietness of your own soul, Could you just receive that from God? Apart from any effort, but just put it on tonight. You're chosen.